It is our first Tacky Talk of November 2022. Tacky Chan, our state representative from the 2nd Norfolk District, is joining us again. Hi, Tacky. Hey, Joe. Good to see you and a happy month of November. Hard to believe. Yes. How was your uh, Halloween? Uh, peaceful. Uh, it's, we, uh, as we all know, the neighborhoods keep changing around us, and uh, we're in that little cycle where we have less kids immediately around us, the trick-or-treating age. Uh, it's just how it works in life. So, you know, I suspect in a few years, I have more trick-or-treating age kids around me, but right now, it's not the case. So it's been it's been a fairly quiet, I think, uh, a very quiet uh, Halloween right now. So, so a lot of leftover uh, candy in the Chan household, I'm guessing. Yeah, unfortunately, we do not. Uh, we have surplus problems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, before I forget, uh, we're recording this on November 2nd, and I want to congratulate you on your, I believe, 12th anniversary uh, of being elected uh, to the House. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it's actually uh, six. We, well, yeah, it's like six, two terms piece. But yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been a fun a dozen years. It's hard to believe how quickly it's gone by, to be frank with you. It's like you blink and suddenly uh, it's a dozen years in and uh, the world keeps changing around us and government and life. And um, and it's been fun. And I'm you know, looking forward to have another two years and serve folks in Quincy, in particular my district, and uh, you know, working in the House of Representatives, my colleagues, and uh, it's it's a good job. I tell folks that it's uh, the job is what you make of it. If you if you let if you're willing to um, you know do the work uh, and uh, let the job be what it is, uh, you know, it can be it can be a lot of fun until you're ready for your next stage in life. So for better or for worse, I'm not ready for my next stage of life yet, and um, hopefully we'll be back. Uh, after next Tuesday uh, for another two-year term. So I'd be very thankful for the voters that allow me to do that. So well, at the time, actually, in, in 2010, um, you, along with, I think, a colleague uh, in Saugus, perhaps, the first Asian Americans uh, elected to the State House. Yeah, Donald Wong uh, from Saugus. People may know him as the Wong family that owns the Kowloon restaurant. Oh. M- much later on, we discovered Paul Schmidt from... Uh, Fair, uh, was it Fair, Westport? He's from Westport. Is actually one quarter Chinese. So oh. I don't think we discovered later we're all left together. It, it was an interesting phenomenon that year because people had worked into the presumption that Asian Americans have been elected to the House of Representatives before. It became a, a media uh, trying to find historical record via the clerk's office to to find out any Asian has been elected. But there was always like this weird presumption that oh yeah we've had them. It was like but he couldn't remember who they are. So yeah, history in the making was not on my uh, mind. Just getting through the election was the priority. Um, but, you know, I, I was obviously aware. I mean, you, you guys all know I have uh, a lot of institutional knowledge of state house and, and Quincy politics at this stage. And, um, you know, it never th- I never thought that much about it. Uh, I just need to get out of an election first. So... <laughs> Sure. Uh, well, seeing was talking about it, uh, November 8th, state election, uh, many different voting options available to folks now, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, as, as of this time, um, you still got early voting going on. Uh, that will end uh, this weekend. Um, you have uh, mail-in voting. That's ending this week in terms of ability to mail-in votes, absentee uh, ballots. I believe it's passed. And uh, voter registrations 10 days prior to the election now, so 10 calendar days. So that's also now passed. But the, the opportunity uh, to vote has never been more available to people 
Uh, and uh, because of my mom's health conditions, uh, it's very unclear about me and election. We found it a hardware on primary day when she had a, an, an episode uh, and uh, we had to try to get to vote that day. And it was actually very challenging for her that day to get to vote. So, you know, we took the opportunity to do mail-in ballots because um, of uncertainty of what may be going on election day in the family. Uh, and this is the changing world we live in. Uh, and we have so many different ways to do this because, especially because of COVID, there is no real excuse to vote in my mind. It's available and it's there. And in mail-in votes in particular, you can actually track it online to ensure when it got to, when it was mailed to you and when they received it and uh, whether or not the clerk has uh, processes accepted. Uh, you can check online for that stuff uh, if you're uh, concerned about um, where your ballot is. Um, and even then, if you get a mail-in ballot and you decide you want to show up to polls but didn't send a mail ballot in, you can still vote in person. Um, the system, you know, is in place to prevent double voting. So, you know, the rows, the rows all checked off. So, I mean, I don't know what to tell people anymore. It's like, you know, I used to say it's a 13 hour day on, on Tuesday, you know, it's a big gap in time, try to do your best to get there. Now it's like, you got basically three weeks, four weeks of, uh, of the ability to get registered, uh, your ballot in, uh, and, uh, you know, if you're afraid of, uh, Mail-in ballot, you can go in person early. I mean, it's, it's just some opportunities. My, my nephew's voting for the first time at Commonwealth, Virginia. Uh, he, he's in college his first year, and you know, he got his mail-in ballot. He was actually concerned because it didn't get, get to him yet, but you know, eventually got there. Yeah, and just interestingly, mail-in ballots must be postmarked by November 8th, but they'll be accepted up until Saturday, November 12th, for the, for the state election at least. It's treated the same as um, absentee ballots. Okay. Following the same rule, people don't realize your absentee ballots have to be postmarked properly and received. And um, particularly people overseas, the military, uh, those two groups, uh, you know, those absentee ballots give them a bit more time to get back to uh, the clerk's office and counted. Uh, but to be honest with you, most people are going to get their ballots in, you know, on election day. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's the message has been giving for two solid years of 2020-21. Ballots must be in the clerk's office on election day by mail-in. Um, I do expect that people are going to be like drilled in the head for two years of doing that. So I, I would suspect not that many um, will be post-election day. Uh, and i doubtful that uh, in Massachusetts in particular, I, I, I just don't see um, the, you know, a few extra days of ballots making a huge difference in some of these races around the state. I think there's some close races like let low state rep race is going to be fairly close. So they probably won't make it official after uh, absentee ballot deadline has gone through on receipt. Um, and there might be a close race in um, uh, the North, uh, what is it? The, the Becca Roush, uh, Sean Dooley race uh, out in, I can't remember the name of the Senate district. It's it's like Norfolk, Norfolk and Bristol now. I can't remember the name of these districts that that's west of us. But um, that might be a closed state Senate race. Um, but yeah, right now, it's, you know, from the legislature standpoint, I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of what I call uh, um, uh, nail-biting situations. Yeah, um, and remind folks too, there is a drop box located right outside Quincy City Hall. So you can, you can drop your ballot right in that box uh, up until eight o'clock on election night. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I forgot about the drop box. Yeah, you you uh you can actually get up there and, and drop your mail, uh, drop your mail and ballot if you're concerned about using the post service, or it's election day and you know you got to get to work and are 
early hour or whatever. You can you can pass by City Hall and do the drop and run in the middle of the night if you have to. And uh, unlike uh, some other states, uh, I'm pretty confident people are respectful of getting to a drop box. Uh, I've not heard of any incidences uh, thus far of uh, intimidation or or the you know the potential threat of you know people uh, feeling like they've been um, how did to put this um, surveyed by certain of the folks believing that you're uh, and I mean you literally you and me are doing something improper. So uh, thankfully we live in Massachusetts. Absolutely. Um, well, let's talk about the bombshell that uh, was dropped yesterday, Tacky, from the MBTA's general manager. Looks like one of the first responsibilities of the new administration is to pick a new uh, GM for the T. Well, yeah, the GM is actually picked by the uh, board of directors of the MBTA. So it's kind of yes, kind of no. I mean, the new governor will have appointments to the board, but you know, the governor's opinion does ha- carry weight regarding uh, who the new uh, general manager is. It's a surprising no. I mean, it's been eight years since the last administration has changed over. And quite frankly, as I say over and over again, no one's be the one to turn the lights out on the way out the door. And uh, you know, the Poltec, um, Steve Poltec uh, has done four years there, actually had to work through a pretty challenging time uh, during COVID, uh, where pretty much he had no money coming in from ridership. Um, and then uh, he also came into a situation, there was huge infrastructure problems. And I believe he's like the fourth MBTA general manager in, in eight years. So the fact he lasted just under uh, near four years is quite remarkable for a job, but you can barely keep anybody 18 months. So uh, the endurance test of this guy to actually last this long is probably going to be a record for MBTA general managers, you know, in the last 20 years. Um but I think, you know, you all saw in the news, you know, the shortcomings too. Uh, but I, I wish I could say it was just this guy. It's it's more than just him. I think it's the lack of uh, consistent leadership, top heavy management, the desire to downsize their budget via people reduction. And, you know, I truly believe on a personal level, they were trying to fill in a lot of positions via independent contractors as part of construction projects, you know, as opposed to hiring you know, more per, uh, full-time personnel. I mean, you know, you all, uh, I mean, Quincy is a very politically savvy city and you, you have a clue how many calls they get about, Hey, I want a job at the T. I want a job at the T. I mean, it's like a mantra um, to be perfectly honest in the last decade. Uh, well, not, not well, not, well, less six years, you know, I've gotten no requests for a job at the T. And, and one of the reasons it's very hard to get a job at the T is because there were no vacancies at the T. People didn't want to leave. Uh, even though they have that funky 20-year rule regarding 20 years and they get your max pension. It's like a funky math uh, to get there. But I mean, even then, people don't just jump off, you know, the T right away when they're pension eligible either. They, they do kind of hang out for a while longer. So the fact they have, you know, what's 800 jobs remaining to fill is, is shocking uh, to, to me, uh, who, who's working government my whole life and that's all oh, I need can you give me a job with the T. No, there's no vacancies. I mean, now I mean unknowns to the rest of us. Now they got vacancies galore, but they have insufficient training uh capacity to get people onto the job quickly. And you know, again, this is a management issue. And we've been saying this over and over again for years. It's not the workers entirely. It's a management issue, management management issue. And now it's fully come to light this is a management problem. And uh well 
you know, Steve, Steve Potak, I'll give him a lot of credit, you know, getting capital projects going. He made sure that the Wallace and T-Station reconstruction was actually very smooth. You know, the bus transportation they provided uh, on the schedule worked out very well. Uh, you know, we, we the rehabs of the uh, Quincy garages uh, went very smoothly. Uh, admittedly, the old low site is having some issues regarding uh, finding a bid price that isn't $400 million. And uh, it is a future, it needs to be a future ready site. It's not just, you know, putting a, you know, 80, $80 million, you know, standard diesel station. It needs to be future ready for electric and hybrid and perhaps hydrogen buses of the future, which is why the price tag is so large. It's, it's, it's a future ready location, but it's very expensive. Um, and, you know, we saw the fires in the T, the derailment on the red line. Uh, you know, there's been no talk about accountability of uh, the Chinese car manufacturing site that's out in Springfield because they've been providing these vehicles. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of challenges as well. So and he's done some good stuff. I agree. I mean, regarding things like capital projects, getting on top of emergencies, you know, really taking advantage of COVID to get a lot of stuff done, particularly, you know, government center was completely done properly, uh, you know, under his, his term during the COVID uh, crisis. Um, and then trying to navigate, like I said, basically a year and a half, and still now reduce uh, ridership revenue. Um, you know, a lot of challenge. But on the flip side, I mean, he continued to perpetuate a management problem, being top-heavy, uh, insufficient workers. And again, it's it's you know, like Republicans like to do in state government, uh, you know, try to make things privatized. And well, here you go, guys. This is what MBT looks like because they have been privatizing it via using uh, capital projects to to uh, fill the jobs with temporary workers. It seems like um, one solution might be they need an MBTA school. You know, they, they need an actual school for the T to foster their new workforce. Well, a T workforce culture is a legit issue. Um, historically, until we really, until we got to Mitt Romney, we're talking about way back machine now, now, the MBTA general managers actually come out of the T workforce itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've met a few in my days when I worked in the Senate, uh, because obviously the T is very important to us. And, uh, you know, there was a pretty consistent line, but they, you know, starting Mitt Romney, moving to Volpatrick, and now uh, um, uh, Governor Baker, you've been hi- every, they've been always hiring people that actually literally no idea how the T works. And most of them actually have a minimal transportation experience. There was some exceptions, like when my car, my uh, high school friend, Rich Davies, was a T general manager for, um, I think, a year and a half. He was a, a commuter rail manager for a few years, and he became secretary of transportation. Now he, he run, he's been bouncing around the country, running around, or actually fixing up uh, other public transits, and you know, doing damage control, get up, running, and moving on again. So. Uh, there are some folks, but you know, one reason or another, they couldn't keep them, uh, mostly because you know, good talent, you know, is high price, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what you pay for folks. So, uh, but they, you know, I've not. We'll see if there's another general manager that comes out of the T system. I'm going to tell you, the answer is going to be no. There's just so few employees and so few talent, and this is where also the pension system gets kind of funky because I said earlier this weird 20 year rule. Well, the general manager is actually subject to the MBTA pension program, oh. so. Yeah, you get your high three there, and then you, you cash out in three years. Again, you don't have that like nine-year uh, general manager for an agency like this, which is basically a giant corporation uh, that you need to have, you know, consistent leadership and, and monitoring over projects. Like, you know, during the big administration, you know, they, they did point out to us that uh, a lot of projects kept 
being restarted because every time a new general manager came in, they have to learn the whole thing all over again. They have to start off from scratch. They have no idea what's going on. So it's a spend capital projects. Um, well, they're kind of learning the ropes. And by the time they figure it out, they're gone and they start the process over again. So a government center is the example of that. That, that project's been in rotating GMs for like 25, 30 years because every time a new GM comes in, they don't know what it is. They have to start over. So I give, you know, Paul Tech a lot of credit. I mean, you know, he did not sit on his hands on these uh, projects sitting on the desk at the T and just, you know, took them off the shelf, you know, and just did it um, because these plans had been there for a long time. Someone just had to have the, the willpower to execute. Yeah. I mean, some some might say that, you know, the, the pandemic helped that because of all the federal money that came in during that time. Absolutely. And the MBTA bonds separately from the state and people kind of don't understand that as well. I was still around when we did forward funding where the T is now on a fixed budget based on the sales tax, uh, which a lot of questions that worked out. But you know, right now in hyperinflation, it's working out just fine in terms of revenue. But uh, when it, we're not in hyperinflation, it, it doesn't quite work as well because it's tied to the sales tax in the state. Um uh, but I mean, he used to just build a state for 18 months of taxpayer money. And, you know, there you go, he used to build with no accountability. And the state used to carry all their debt. So, uh, you know, when we forward funded them, they, we forced them to actually have to carry their own debt and actually manage their own capital projects, as opposed to having the legislature earmark their projects for them, which is actually better. I mean, think about it. You don't want the legislature earmarking MBTA projects. It's just, the, it's not good management. Uh, so it, it's actually better let the, uh, safety and uh, the riders uh, come first and let the T decide where the safety is, as opposed to the legislature telling you got to spend money in certain places. Uh, and, and that is much smarter way of doing it, uh, taking out of our control. Um, so this was back in like 99. I mean, we're talking about like ancient history too, uh, these days regarding the T. Because uh, people forgot what the T uh, billing system was like prior to uh, 2000. And actually, it was Joe Sullivan, the former mayor of Braintree, former uh, rep who was the chair of transportation, was one of the people that put this project together. Um, he, he knows very well how to how to do this. And I think uh, Senator Haverin uh, from Haverhill, I think it was from Haverhill, I get my locations mixed up. Um, you know, he uh, um, was with Thuin. I mean, it was with Thuin. Uh, yeah, he's going to tell I can't remember where things are anymore. But yeah, well, anything over the Tobin Bridge is foreign to us down here in Quincy. So, <laughs> well, even my memory's wearing thin, right? Uh, but uh, Bob Haven was the senator who put this together too. So, you know, I was around trying to learn that this stuff way back in the way back machine. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's how it was done, and you know, this is how the T's fund. It's it's one penny of sales tax, so six point two five percent, one percent of it goes to the T, and you know, as part of the fixed budget. And we've done some one time. Uh, appropriations to try to taper uh, fare increases. Uh, but globally speaking, you know, this is one of the lowest fare systems because it's a flat system. It's not distance space travel, you know, us in New York, the further you go, the more you pay. We're a flat system. So the further you go, the, you know, cost-wise, you're the cheapest one on the planet, but mm -hmm. you do it by distance. So you know, people kind of forget that sometimes. You have to put this in some context. Yeah. Speaking of uh, taxes, refund checks are going out this week, Techie. Yep. The governor is uh, deciding that he wants to give you all a Black Friday election day gift. I don't know how to put it. <laughs> Normally what happens with tax credits is actually when you go to pay your taxes next year, 
the credit is applied to your tax due, and then you get a refund, or you get a reduction in your tax burden uh, in the 2022 taxes. But the governor changed the rules of the Department of Revenue, uh, the regulations that they can now uh, give it back as a direct rebate or refund to all you. Um, and actually me too, I get a, a little bit of money because, you know, I'm not part of the top 1%. It's going to make it like a bandit in this uh, proposal where it's, again, it's total taxes paid. It's what you uh, have, you know, your tax burdens percentage. So they're looking at almost 14% now, according to the last uh, status news article, near 14% of the tax burden uh, from 2021 is going to come back in a check or direct deposit um, probably in next seven-ish or so days. Mm-hmm. Yep. Watch your mailbox, folks, or watch your uh, your direct deposit accounts. Absolutely. And uh, people really do going to need that money in the near term. Uh, we all saw that energy prices have been fixed. Uh, basic rate for electric has been set at the worst possible time. Um, and, uh, you know, inflation still continues. The Fed's going to hike interest rates shortly. So, you know, keep looking for those CDs and short-term bonds if you have you know, a little bit of money when I get some interest on it. Um, and I say this and say it again, I fully expect consumer spending uh, to really uh, come down starting in November, starting right now. Uh, people uh, are going to travel in November. Prices are rapidly rising for ticket prices uh, for the Thanksgiving week. Uh, but I don't see a lot of uh, movement in the Christmas period. I do think people want to use uh, their money to see folks as opposed to spend a lot of money on folks, I think is where to put it. Yeah. Any um, uh, discussion at all on the economic recovery bill? Yeah, the supplemental budget slash economic development bill, you know, it's an active conversation. As I said back in August, you know, the conversation is hardly over, but obviously uh, you get $3 billion is coming back to taxpayers, you know, this week. So that changes our surplus number significantly as we talked in the past. Uh, I do expect a, a mini econ debt bill in some form, and it'd still be very substantial, but I don't expect to see earmarks. I don't expect to see major policy changes. Um, don't expect to see um, a lot of um, non-essential projects, so to speak. I mean, I, I fully expect that the hospital assistance money will be there um, that are COVID impacted. I fully expect to see uh, some kind of LIHEAP fund, people with low income heating assistance program. Uh, I, I do expect uh, money for the RAF program, which is uh, a program on people in transitional housing, um, which is going to be a very tough winter uh, for that. You're probably going to see some stuff with substance abuse and homelessness. I, I do. I wouldn't be surprised if you see some extra money over a place like Mass and Cast to help Mayor Wu out in Boston. Um, so, uh, you know, we're talking about a lot of money. I mean, the hospitals alone are $300 million minimum. Uh, but, I mean, it's still small compared to the almost – you know, close to almost $3 billion in tax cuts, plus um, special projects, plus bonds, plus a whole lot of stuff we were, we're trying to get done last July. Uh, so, uh, and what's going to also happen is we're going to have a little extra buffer in place and surplus that we're going to let, you know, be there in, if there is a short form revenue. Because if Christmas and Black Friday turn out to be very poor sales tax months, we're going to have to backfill that with something. Uh, and, uh, you know, what remaining little surplus we have at that point, you know, we're mostly going to hold aside a little bit of that to make sure that we can p- make sure we pay our bills come come January uh, if there is a shortfall. Yeah, and I've, I read recently that uh, lottery revenues are, are down um, as well. 
Yeah, lottery is a little bit of a funky thing. I mean, you know, the lottery revenues obviously took a massive hit in COVID. I mean, Kino in particular is, is 10% of the, of the lottery. So no restaurants, no Kino. But, you know, as soon as there was like a reopening, we had record numbers in, in 2021 of lottery sales. And actually lottery sales up to the end of the fiscal year in 2022, you know, into July 31st. Uh, no, I'm sorry, July 1st, end of fiscal year, uh, June 30th, July 1st, you know, was actually ahead of, uh, projections uh, going to projections now it's slowed down however it's still very, very on for the, for the lottery um, and uh, you can't blame sports betting that's not online yet until next year and uh, one of the reasons the lottery you know got a huge pickup was you know billion dollar powerball uh, <laughs> that's tonight actually yes so if we don't uh, talk next week tech it's because i'm in fiji <laughs> well if you, if you win this thing i might be joining you uh, <laughs> So uh, not like I'm encouraging people to gamble, but uh, if you, this podcast does not drop before midnight, but uh, was it Strong's at 10 p.m.? Before 10 p.m. 10, 10 p.m., I think, yeah. Uh, you know, get your Powerball ticket. Um, but yeah, 1.2 and growing uh, Powerball, it, it creates a huge spike in participation. The, the state gets a, a piece of the action as part of uh, the multi-state lottery uh, participation. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why uh, when we started coming out of like pseudo lockdown, whatever you want to call it, in the fall of 2020, and remember there was a massive of both Powerball and um, what was it Mega Millions? I can't, I can't forget. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I can tell I don't play enough lottery. I just oversee the lottery. Um, you know that huge nationally had a huge impact on all lotteries with those me- huge mega prizes, and uh, people for some reason don't feel it's worth it until you get to like the the half billion dollar mark. Oh yeah, yeah I'll buy it. Right. I, which is kind of ironic because it, it just increases the odds exponentially. <laughs> it is, isn't it? it we had the bigger the jackpot, the harder it is to win it. Yeah. Uh, remember the days when you know, you had like mega bucks and man dollars people went bonkers for it. Was oh, buying oh yeah, that was big, big time. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big time as a kid. Oh, man bucks. I mean, oh, everyone's buying tickets now. Made front like news and all this stuff. Now it's like, well, it's one billion dollars becomes newsworthy. Talk about right. how life has changed, right? Uh, so, I mean, the lottery will see a recovery there. The lottery will, uh, you know, see a uh, keynote recovery at some level as we move towards the winter months. People are, are going to be, I do believe people are going to be dining out less, but people will be, you know, still, you know, active um, in the winter, but I don't think it'll be nearly as active of a COVID peak and God knows what else is trying to come at us this winter. It seems like every time I turn around, there's, there's another disease floating around. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, you know they'll, they'll be fine. I just I just don't I just don't see uh, this this uh, revenue dip not making projection going to be a permanent problem. I just I just don't see that. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit uh, before we run out of time about I wanted to mention the uh, the migrant situation down at the Kingston Plymouth area and the uh, Department of uh, Housing Community Development kind of taking it on the chin, I guess, for not notifying the communities that these folks were coming. Oh, you mean the stay not courting of anybody before they do it? Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that an unfunded state mandate? Is that what that is? <laughs> well, uh, I think it's more like, hey, surprise. Uh, it, it's interesting how government operates, right? I mean, the city of Boston and Mayor Janey started moving homeless folks, you know, into Saugus hotels without telling anybody. Uh, you know, the state, you know, also, you know, moves migrants, but also we've done this with the homeless before migrants. People forget that. Uh, you know, in the, the um, late 90s into the early 2010s for, for close to 15, 20 years, you know, we were putting people in hotel rooms 
uh, that are that are homeless or transitional housing situation, particularly if they have families, and we didn't tell the communities they were coming. Right. Um, so, you know, this is not unusual. It's not new. It just happens to be, you know, uh, migrants uh, now as opposed to local homeless uh, seeking a place to live. Either way, it's not good because you didn't inform the community what's going on to ensure the community is prepared to uh, do whatever service they need to do. Uh, it doesn't let people don't want to help. That is not the message. The message is we can't help you if we're not ready for you to help you. And uh, it's not like other places around the country. It's like, you know, you know, get out. You all don't belong here and stuff like that. Uh, no, local government, you know, has wants to be helpful here in Massachusetts. You know, people, people are good that way. Um, you just got to be prepared for them to come uh, is what their the message is. Um, yeah, it's like it's like dinner guests that arrive unannounced. <laughs> Well, exactly it. Um, but you know, want to flip for sake of counter argument, since we can do counter arguments in this format. You know, if uh, if you don't want them there, you can start staging a uh, government, uh, you know, indicating your protest or, or the the move to move them in there, saying that hey, you know, I know you need to move, you know, fifty homeless people to my district, but we can't handle it. We don't want them. Don't send them. So on the flip side argument, you know, the, the state you know, gets in there really fast. So it prevents the local community from raising a protest, uh, you know, that they, they are unprepared to do it. And, you know, we don't have time. So, you know, we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do this at all. So, I mean, that's a counter argument on that front uh, for the sake of presenting two sides. How people are uh, behaving towards people moving into an area, uh, even temporarily regarding these protests by by uh, white supremacist groups, you know, is extremely troubling. Yeah, I guess the argument could also be we didn't want to tip those groups off ahead of time. Yeah, it, it, this has been quite um, empowered, uh, really, after since the November, uh, sorry, January 6th uh, riot, insurrection, rebellion, uh, whatever you all want to call it. Uh, you know, the violent day on Capitol Hill uh, on January 6th, it feels like they've been even more emboldened to uh, get out there. Uh, you know, there's been a swastika uh, situation, I believe in Stoneham. Uh, I know for a fact, you know, in Quincy at the Crusher, uh, you know, there were swastikas out there. Um, you know, obviously, you know, but this was pre-COVID. I mean, Beach would know had a swastika situation, uh, but this was pre-COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been going around quite a bit. And, and you, there's been, you know, I've heard uh, from Senator Keene and his other towns he represent, there's been other anti-Semitic issues going on there. Um, so it's real, folks. It's in Massachusetts. The Anti-Defamation League does track these things. And there's a huge spike in this stuff in 2021. Uh, and there's no reason not to believe it's continuing in 2022. Um, and uh, what's concerning is whether or not the feds are able to keep track of these guys. Um, they're very good at uh, monitoring these days and you know, informing local uh, police of what's going on. So um, you know, the cooperation between federal government and local law enforcement is crucial because you just don't know uh, if this rises next level. I don't know what could happen. And uh, it's, you don't need situations where people uh, could be attacked, but more importantly, you know, these groups create fear. And uh, when people are afraid, bad things happen. Yeah, very true. 
So you want to get you want to get ahead of it, certainly not let it not let it fester. Well, you got to say something. I mean, we always talk about see something, say something until Nazis show up. And it's a very, you know, unless they're wearing like white, uh, white hoods and, uh, you know, bring like torches into your home. I mean, people seem to have this bizarre notion that if we ignore them, they go away. But let me provide you uh, from a different point of view, um, particularly as, you know, dealing with Asian hate and Asian racism. Uh, you ignore it, it just perpetuates. And this is kind of the interesting about the racism of uh, being ignored and racism of silence. Because in Asian communities, uh, we're some people say well, racism is everybody else, but you know, people don't acknowledge our existence when it happens. So you ignore it saying, oh, it's a one-off, it goes away, but perpetuates itself until, uh, you know, until you get to a situation like we've had in the last several years of COVID and looking for a scapegoat. So again, not a new phenomenon. If you look at history, it's happened a lot in U.S. history. But you know, you ignore it long enough, things will happen. Uh, and uh, even after violence happened, people still ignored it. So uh, you got to keep it out in front of the light, in the sense that you know it's there, it's wrong, and it's coming. But if you uh, argument is that well, we don't give it more attention it needs. Well. You ever heard of the concept of silence as consent, which is completely false? Silence is not consent, but it's a very interesting human behavior where if someone doesn't say anything, you presume there's consent. It's a human thing. Um, and it's completely fictional in the sense that it's not right. You, you don't say anything doesn't mean you agree. You, you've, you've seen that. You trust me, everybody's done this. Uh, and now you say nothing and you allow white supremacist groups to roam around your neighborhoods. Uh, you don't actually have to name them. You don't actually have to talk about them. You have to acknowledge they exist and to have some vigilance on it. That's all you got to do. Uh, and, you know, and remind folks, you know, that uh, these elements of hatred isn't welcome in our communities by actually noting that they've arrived and, you know, people shouldn't be um, encouraging this behavior. You know, well, it's, I think it's hard to be the first one, you know, to step up and say something. But um, I think once that does happen, um, there's strength in numbers and uh, folks would be surprised at how many other people uh, would back them and support them. But nobody wants to be first. Well, that's correct. Uh, the, uh, take it from a guy who's been out front more than once in his life. You know, someone's got to go out there and, and say, hey, you know, this is a problem. Uh, and, we'll, you know, now we do social media you know, willing to take a couple of shots uh, from, you know, people behind a keyboard uh, feeling the need to um, just tear people down. Uh, and, you know, whether or not I'm willing to do that, as you all know, I don't like social media. I pay very little attention to what's on there. So go ahead and type what you like because um, it's just like, okay, you, you know, you can go do it. Um, but to say it doesn't exist, uh, to say that uh, we have to ignore it, um, isn't right because, uh, you know, would you like this happening to you? And if it happened to you, you know, do you say something? And, you know, we could talk about this with people in situations of domestic violence, uh, people mm -hmm. developmental disabilities. Um, it's not uniquely just about skin color. That's right. Absolutely true. Yeah. We are running short on time today, unfortunately, Tacky, but, uh, there's a lot going on in the world. We can touch on next week if that, that's okay. Sure, we got next week and uh, do a recap of uh, the election and talk about a bunch of other elections that's been having globally. 
That's right. Uh, but in the meantime, how do folks get a hold of you? Well, you can reach me at 617-722-2370, 617-722-2370. Hit a button. Staff will get your voicemail because that's the world we live in these days. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you as quick as you can. T-A-C-K-E-Y dot C-H-A-N at mahouse.gov. Tacky dot chain at mahouse.gov is my email. Uh, thankfully, I'm in a little bit of slower season, so I will find your email. Again, we prioritize emails that are constituent services first. Um, yeah, I still, but I am still getting policy emails, but it's not like it was back during the summer. Uh, you guys know my Facebooks, you know, stay on some tacky chat Facebook. I visited Simmons College. They want to see me pictures of a tour there regarding modern nursing education. It's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, uh, most recent visit, as well as my at tacky chan dot uh, tacky chan Twitter at tacky chan. And obviously, you got the state website, mahlegislature.gov, as well as attackychan.org. Uh, you know, it's the websites that will provide some resources. Of course, here with you at QA TV, uh, I'll be talking to you a little bit on election night, but uh, obviously, uh, you can see the tacky and Joe, uh, you know, informational session. I have no idea what to call this anymore. <laughs> we actually never named this properly on the tacky talk. No, I just kind of, you know, picked that one day. <laughs> I like the alliteration more than anything. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, if you like this, you know, follow Joel's podcast and uh, obviously YouTube and on uh, QA TV. So uh, like early voting, there's no shortage of ways to uh, get Joe in your life. <laughs> And I'm sure that's what everybody is trying to do, uh, more likely QATV. And uh, by the way, we'll have a live election night coverage um, beginning at 8 p.m. on November 8th. So and thank you for being part of that. We look forward to talking to you then and uh, we'll check in with a tacky talk next week. Sounds great. I'll talk to you in a week's time.